Hello and welcome. This is Mr. B on Free Talk with Mr. B. Our guest today is Anthony Hicks. He's going to tell us of his story. I call it Set Me Free. Set Me Free Part 1. The nightmarish events that took place so many years ago. Let's get right with Anthony and listen in because this is Free Talk. Free Talk with Mr. B. You're listening to Free Talk with Mr. B. Hello, good evening. Good morning, good morning. Good evening to you, good morning to me. (laughs) Good morning, Anthony, how are you? I'm doing pretty good, how about me? Very nice. Um, Welcome to Free Talk with Mr. B. Yes, thanks for having me. Oh, it's our pleasure. Welcome to the show indeed. Um, Look, I'm so glad to catch you this early in the morning. Uh, What is it, about 9 o'clock in Houston? Yes, it is. Okay, nice, nice. It's uh, 7 o'clock in Dubai. and uh, 7 o'clock in the evening on your end, huh? Yes, yes, and it's still a pleasure to, definitely a pleasure to have you on. Um, you know, tell us a little bit about you. Tell tell our audiences, our listeners, who you are. Yes, uh, uh, to begin, uh, my name is Anthony Hicks, uh, born and raised in Chicago, Illinois. I'm currently employed with UPS, been with UPS going on now 25 years, which I was credited an additional five years, giving me 30 years in total. Uh, Transferred here from one UPS to another in 1998 of July. I'm a college graduate from Houston Baptist University. uh, And at that time, I got my degree in management and communication at Houston Baptist University. I've completed my course study in 2001. Uh, Graduated at Thomas Jefferson High School in 1981. The son of Earl and Dorothy Hicks, both one from Arkansas, my father, and my mother's from Jackson, Mississippi. I'm the youngest of seven children. Uh, my childhood favorite things to do was play basketball. It was pretty decent all the way throughout my high school years. Uh, graduated high school in June of 1981. I am the father of five. I am currently married to my college sweetheart, Denise. We have three children and eight grandchildren. Um, But to start the story that I wanted to speak about today, I am also an advocate for the National Innocent Network. And what we do in in our work is work with clients, men and women, that were falsely accused of crimes that have since then been exonerated. Some of these individuals have served in totality probably we say estimate about 3,000 years total wow. of false incarceration. Some for murder, some for rape, robbery, burglary, assessment or assortment of crimes that they never committed. I am also a Zonri myself. 
Okay. I okay. was false. I was falsely accused of a crime. Uh, what came out of it was a 20 years prison term in which I served over six years, four months, and seven days. Interesting. You can't uh, forget that number, can you? I, I never will. I served 2,178 days. Wow. Throughout that process, you know, when I was sentenced and charged, I swore to the court that my family and myself would fight this until death takes me. We were blessed to have the resources because I do come from a middle class family. My father's a retiree, currently still with life, 85 years young he is. He retired from General Motors Corporation. My mom, who passed October 14, 2014, October 28, 2014, retired from Barbara Coleman Corporation. So my upbringing was, um, I ain't gonna say we were rich, but we definitely wasn't poverty stricken. My yeah. family, we, we had a nice life. We were very fortunate, you know, and me being born in 1963. I don't know what it is like. A lot of the individuals I've met throughout the country, East Coast to West Coast, the Midwest to the South, I've met a lot of men and women that didn't have the resources I have. Right, right. That is why they. That is why they serve so many years. Mr. So Dean. there's a Dean. word. There's a word you use about the crimes, and I have to say, is it fair to call it allegedly commit? Allegedly commit. Yeah, yes. Some yeah. assumption. It was allegations, yeah. and it turned out to be, and we're doing it right now. We continue to get young men and women home. Right. And once, it, and it's been fortunate here. Now, I'm a part of the National Exoneree Network. That means we, we do many conference calls throughout the week and, and mostly Saturdays because there's a group of us of 50. Okay. We are like what we consider the core group because some of us, you know, have been home a long period of time. So we now are the old heads, as they would say. So when some other individuals, when others are released, some of my other brothers and sisters, when they are fortunate to regain their freedoms, we are like, we fly to various parts of the country. The COVID-19 has really prevented us from doing the work we love to do, because we do love doing this work, because it's fulfilling to see another brother or sister come home. Right. And we meet and greet, because some of these young men and women, and they're not young men and women that once they come home, they some of them, I'm 57 years old, going on 58. Right. Some of them are older than me. Some of them are a few years younger than me. But when they left society, cell phones, the computer world, these things are foreign to them. They mm -hmm. have no knowledge of this. It wasn't even in in production. Right. Now, as time has moved, some of the departments of corrections in various states allow them to have these items. Only if you can afford them. But a lot of people, uh, Mr. B, throughout the process, lose loved ones mainly their parents for sure, sometimes siblings. And the whole thing of uh, incarceration is to break you mentally, not a physical, there's some physicality if you are not minding your own business. But the most, most crucial part of doing time and trying to keep your faith in God that God will somehow turn this false allegation into glory of freedom. And it's a difficult task for them to move about the world because they're paranoid, scared, 
you know, shame some way. But to me, I tell them all the time, you have nothing to be shamed about. This is something that was wrongly done to you. Right. You cannot look. As long as you can look in the mirror, Mr. B, and know that you haven't done this, regardless of what naysayers say or this person says, don't worry about that. You know and God knows what you've done. Right. You know, I am and to record as the day as we have turned into a new year the day is january 10th 2021 i am the only exoneree in the, in the united states that the prosecutor apologized for mm-hmm. the wrong for the incarceration that happened to interesting, me interesting uh there we have had some victims that was part of the false allegation we have a brother out of the state of carolina north carolina mr cotton his his assailant his victim in his case made a misidentification of him she testified against him and was the reason why he was convicted and served 19 count 19 years but you would not believe how how great god really is until you hear the story and the story in his case is they now do a collaboration together, him and her. They travel the country, the United States of America. They have talked together in tandem. They've done a book together. Turns out she realized that she had made a mistake in identifying him. And now they travel the countryside like brother and sister. I see. We have a lot of unique situations. Okay, and so I, I just need to clear up one thing now. The WE is an organization that you are heading. Mm-hmm. What is it? It's the National, the National Innocent Network. Which can people look was, that up? Was put, yes, they can. They can go to innocenceproject.com. Okay, innocenceproject.com. Dot com. And, and the founder of this network we are part of is Barry Check and Peter Newfield. People might remember Barry Chick very well from the 1994 O.J. Simpson case. He was the one that was on the dream team that was his his part in the O.J. case is the DNA. This is what his expertise is in law. He's a criminal defense attorney. Now, they wasn't even established until my case was already on and going. So I was not an IP client, which we always say, the Innocence Project, I was not a client of theirs. Now I'm part of the network, part of the family, but we were, like I said earlier, we were fortunate to have the resources to retain counsel. My, my attorneys were Stephen P. Hurley out of Madison, Wisconsin, and John D. Hyland out of Madison, uh, Wisconsin. So I typed in um, Innocence Project and it shows it's, it's a .org, O-R-G instead. So it's innocenceproject.org, O-R-G. It must be, I'm pretty sure. See, the way I look it up is innocenceproject.com, Mr. B. Okay. Because it shows a listing of how many, it shows, now the page has changed some. They ask for donations and contributions. They do. Yeah. We have a board of directors. And uh, I don't know if you're familiar, Mr. B, with the author, John Grissom. He's wrote numerous fictional books. Numerous. He did one real live book, one factual reality book of a client out of Oklahoma 
but most of his work is fictional, like A Time to Kill, The Firm, uh, Pelican Brief, Rainmaker, you know, they didn't turn some of his books into movies. Mm-hmm. Currently, I'm reading his latest novel, A Time for Mercy. He sits on our board of directors. And the thing is, and even here, as I've, as I indicated earlier, I transferred here from one UPS to another in 1998. Senator Raleigh, Rodney Ellis is one of our board of directors as well, right here out of the state of Texas, because we are now in 35 states across the, across the country. Okay. But New York City is our headquarters for what we do. Now we have a Texas Innocence Project. Now Wisconsin has the Innocence Project. My home state of Illinois has it. California has their own. New Orleans has yeah. their own. I'm seeing we California's are, here. It, it just popped up on my webpage. Yes, they have. I mean, we're all over the country. and But we are one family with one agenda. Not only to get these men and women to regain their rights and liberties just to live as free men and women, we also get them compensation. Wisconsin, the state I was charged and convicted in, has the lowest compensation law in the country as we speak. For every year you serve, you can't get no more than five, $25,000. I don't care how much time you serve, Mr. B. Oh, wow. Now, we are in the process of rewriting the law. Yes, we are. We're gonna, we, we are in the process of getting it retroactive to 1990 at $50,000 per year for all the time you serve no no with a maximum payout of nine of one million dollars now i have received the twenty five thousand some years ago but in my case my personal case i was fortunate i sued my trial counsel for negligence and malpractice uh jury awarded me 2.6 million dollars we had to negotiate that because of the ability for his ability to pay. We settled out of court. Now that's a I can't disclose the amount I was paid due to the fact that was the agreement of the settlement. But as we seek and as this year begins, now with the change of power, and we had already had a vote. We've had this voted on twice. The last time. forward to uh to okay. seek the compensation for so me you said you had it voted on question yeah you said something you had it voted on twice we, then what yeah we had we we had we had the wisconsin compensation bill the new one that we presented to the lawmakers of wisconsin was voted on twice recently the re- most recent was 2016. in the assembly the state and local level they they, they each they have their own laws you know state and local right so we had the assembly voted 93 to unanimous to pass the bill. We ran into a complication with the Senate in the state in the state legislation in Wisconsin. So it halted right there. But believe it or not, it was it's spearheaded by a Republican official. And we have a we, we now are in communication now as the new year started with COVID nineteen it kinda of slowed down some of the um, the process. Right. So we were gonna to try to get to this in twenty twenty. Yeah, I couldn't imagine. What we have on yeah, what we have on the 
agenda this year, and quickly we're going to move very quickly and efficient because people are aging. Just like I indicated, I'm 57. I was 30 some odd years old, you know, 27 when this journey started in my life in 1990. It's just this past year, November 16, was 30 years ago. This happened to me. This nightmare started when I was first charged. And let me let me go through the beginning part of that. In November 16, I was I'm yeah, at this time I'm a young gentleman, you know. So I'm at a, I'm at a nightclub, I have a couple cocktails. Don't get me wrong, I wasn't no choir boy, but I but I wasn't breaking no law. Right. So I was having cocktails out with some buddies. You know, might have stayed in the club too late. I, I, I admit that as I look back on it now in 2020 hindsight. So we left the club about 1.30. I'm in my own personal vehicle. So we said goodbye and say, hey, see you later. You know, I'm going home to my wife and children. I get pulled over two blocks from the club. Now, I would always say it's DWB, driving white black. That's my, that's what I say. And I believe that wholeheartedly today. I still believe that. I was pulled over. Now, granted, I had a couple cocktails, so, you know, not swerving, not speeding, nothing. Just, I get stopped. That stop turns into a DWI. From a DWI, I'm arrested on November 16th, about 2.07, about time all the paperwork is written up right there, taken into custody. And, and while I'm sitting there, this alleged crime must have took place earlier that day. Now, I understand November 16, 1990, is early Friday, eight, early Friday in the morning. But on Thursday morning, someone went to the, uh, the victim's home, not me, but somebody went to this young lady's home and persuaded them to let them in their apartment at seven o'clock in the morning to use the phone. From that phone call, this young lady was violated sexually twice, two different occasions throughout the 25 to 35 minute ratio. That's two counts of sexual assault every time a separate incident of penetration. That's how they charge you. Then she was robbed and burglarized. So these are the four charges that was put on me when she said, he looks like the guy that did this to me. She said she really didn't get a clear look, but she pointed me out in a lineup. But I have a, I have a, my family, that's myself, my grandfather, my brothers, my dad, my sister, one of my sisters. We have a, what, what, what people used to say when I was younger, a Kurt Douglas dimple in our chins. So right. it's a very, it's something you can see plain as day on all of us. I don't care how far distant you from, you can see the dimple, the cliff on our chin. When she went to describe the victim, she never made reference to that. And that is a very distinguished mark on me. Something you can, anybody that knows me knows. Oh, they, as they got the Kurt Douglas dimple. That's what they used to say when we were children, me and my brother. When we started school, that was the way we used to get teased. You know, just as some they kids say. Right. So as I go through the process, I said, man, I don't know nothing about this. I don't know these people. And I understand that I'm not trying to be racial here, but she was a, a white female. I understand. So we retain a counsel 
I tried to get various counsel there because Madison, Wisconsin, the way I look at Madison, because it's not my home city, but it's my wife's. It's a college town, very educated people. These are not ignorant folks. These are people that know how to read and write and very conscientious of what they say and do. This is what I believe. Right. Throughout the process, Mr. B, they wanted to bring me a plea bargain for three years. I'm not doing three days for something I ain't done. You know. So I'm not gonna I'm not gonna say, Oh, I did this when I know I didn't. I'm not gonna do that. Never would I tell I have children, I have sons. I would never tell no man to say he did something just for a lighter sentence just to get out the way. I would never do that. Not for not to me, not to myself. I didn't care if they gave me four hundred years. I'm not gonna say I did something I didn't do. So I go you know, I'm, as I said earlier, we were fortunate. I was bonded out. They put a, you know, some people would say at that time, back in 1990, you know, it's a 10,500. Not in the state of Wisconsin, don't have the state laws that Texas has. We don't have bills bombs in the state of Wisconsin. It's that's 10,500 cash money, or you sit while you wait trial. I didn't have to wait. So I, we posted my bond, I get out. March 26, 1991. As I'm out on bond, my counsel, the guy we, we retained, I thought he was efficient in his job. And, and granted, he was an African-American male lawyer, black lawyer. I thought he was worthy to take care of the task. As I'm out from March 26, I go to trial the week of December 16, 1991. On December 19th, 1991, they find me guilty. This is where it gets tricky because my nightmare begins now. Because now I'm set to get sentenced and sent off to the Department of Corrections. In the process, Mr. B, a lot of things were said. A lot of, uh, some more false allegations were coming up. They said from the county jail that I ordered contract killings of the prosecutor in my case, the victim, my lawyer, my lawyer's son. So they want to charge me with four counts of conspiracy to commit murder. Wow. This is where well, as I wait, because I'm supposed to be scheduled to be sentenced in March of 92. I was sitting in Dane County Jail in the, in the city of Madison, Wisconsin. So they postponed my sentencing to investigate that crime, talking about they're going to charge me on a federal level with full conspiracy to commit murder. So I have to sit, I'm waiting and waiting. After they do their thorough investigation, they saw there's a jailhouse snitch. And somebody in the jailhouse said they was in the vicinity with me and they heard me on the phone making, and I'm saying that I'm gonna have these people killed. <laughs> so about about time Mr. B they went through that investigation, they find out they said so all was just a jailhouse snitch trying to get his time lesson. So they just just you know, they dispersed that. But in the meantime, I'm still already done started my appeal process on the charges I've been convicted of. It sounds like a scary movie. Uh, it's very much a scary movie. You gotta live through it, Mr. B. You know, you say to yourself, This is how nightmares begin. Right, right, right. But to tell the story, you know, I get eventually get sentenced July 31st of 1992. I am released in July. I, I come back through the system in 1993. July was a was a month that it always stays in my mind. 
because July of 1993, we were able to cons to gather the evidence through process, through briefing and through investigation to get the test done, the DNA analysis done on the hair samples that were collected throughout the investigation. So they weren't able to do that before? Uh, they, 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 only, they, they use the phrase, it's a microscopic, uh, they're similar. They consisted of the same, but it was not DNA tested. It was only tested under a microscope. Okay. So they say, oh, they similar, they similar there. And then the district attorney throughout my trial kept screaming to the jury, it's a match, it's a match, it's a match. But the DNA analysis was never done until we were able to go back through the same court and get it approved where we could have it tested by cell market, a company that does DNA testing throughout this country for all the cases in Germantown, Maryland. Right. So we got that test result back in July of 1993, excluding me. So now, so now in the process, Mr. B, we now, after we get the test results, uh, and we have a definitive answer that it don't belong to me. We forward this information to the court of the United, I mean, to Wisconsin's Court of Appeal. In 1995, they ruled on it, 3-0. That was a three-judge panel in the Court of Appeals process. It was a 3-0 decision in my favor. So at this time, in 1995, I'm thinking I'm coming home then. Nope, that ain't what happened. The prosecutor, the state prosecutor, appealed that decision. Now they have that right to appeal the decision. So well, I do, at this time, I'm learning the law because at this time, it's for me to start understanding what's taking place with me. So in the meantime, between time, I'm taking course studies to be a certified paralegal. You know, older guys in there, older gentlemen in there that's part of the system, some are not, they're guilty of the crimes maybe they have been convicted of, but they told me to learn the law, learn the process. Just because you have high-priced attorneys don't mean you should be ignorant to what's taking place. Yes, yes. And then, so, so this is what we did, Mr. B. I started learning in the process. I started learning a great deal about the law. Very And true. morally, just because this is what I'm part of now. This is part of my life for, forever. Regardless of how it plays out, this will always be a part of my life. So I did want to educate myself to the best of my ability to know whenever my attorney spoke with me, I didn't, wasn't ignorant to what they were saying because it's different than ordinary life. Sometime in life, you might know something about a particular subject matter, but you don't, you're ignorant to something else. This is incredible, but there is more. Let us look forward to listening to the next episode of Set Me Free. Part two. Let's continue the conversation. Let's follow www.freetalkwithmrb.com. Free Talk with Mr. B on Instagram. Free Talk with Mr. B in LinkedIn. And wherever you listen to your podcast, Free Talk with Mr. B will be here.